This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly, a completely incident-free weekend of Premier League football to look back on in which no one got angry, no managers lied about what happened in front of all of our eyes, no one waited for ages for perfectly good goals to be disallowed, no one, nothing, carry on. And amongst it all, some brilliant football, Anthony kissing the badge, Ericsson pulling the strings, four wins on the bounce for Manchester United dispatching this season's Invincibles. Ivan Tony get on that plane, five or kind of six for goal-shy Brighton, and no one saw it coming, come back from Bournemouth, a wild end at Stamford Bridge. City held up by Stevie G and Spurs clicking into gear. There's a breathless derby at Goodison, Che Adams missing from a centimetre and Newcastle robbed at St James's Park. And we'll finish today's pod with a simply stunning musical finale. All that plus your questions and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. Jay says, this is the A-team. David says, the A-team. Stephen says, I haven't seen a lineup this good since Boys Life formed, which uh, is Brian McFadden and Shane Duffy, uh, one from Westlife and one from Boyzone. And I do have a Westlife anecdote, which I don't believe I've told, but we'll save that for later. Uh, on the panel today, Jonathan Wilson, welcome. Morning, how are you doing? Very good. Barney Ronnie, hello. Hi, hi everyone. Barry Glendenning, hello. Hello, Max. Ollie says, I'm looking forward to this edition of Guardian Referee Weekly. Can you make sure you don't follow the mistake of other outlets and let the football distract from the thing we all want to talk about? Um, a big weekend for VAR. Um, I'm trying to see on the Zoom call who is less excited about <laughs> this being the big talking point. Brad says, do you think VAR has been a net positive for the pod? Are discussions about VAR being bad more enjoyable to take part in than should VAR be introduced so according to the Premier League, in 2018-19, before VAR was introduced, the percentage of correct key match decisions was 82%. With the help of VAR in 1920, it was 94%. But over the weekend, we had quite a few decisions. Does, does anyone have any sort of new thoughts on the matter? Barney, he puts his hand up immediately. Um, it's not really a new thought. <laughs> but um, there was a good bit... Um, when Anthony Taylor was um, was kind of pouring, it took five minutes um, for him to go to just to think about something that was kind of very vague and subjective, and who knows, maybe this, maybe that. Five minutes staring at his VAR screen, and it was described the fact that he did not then change his decision. He stuck to his decision. It was described by the match of the day commentator as refreshing. <laughs> After five minutes of staring, have you seen Stranger Things? There's a lot of talking that about the hive mind, the evil substance that's seeping through the gateway is part of a hive mind. If you kill one part of it in Russia, you kill the other part in America. It's all one substance. And this is what VAR chat is as well. It doesn't matter. Would it be interesting if we went through which of these 
very, very boring situations Anthony Taylor was looking at or which one Paul Tierney was looking at. Would that matter? The answer is no. It's a hive mind and you have to kill one bit of it. But the point is, how unrefreshed do you have to be in life generally to find Anthony Taylor looking at the vast screen for five minutes and then sticking with his decision? Refreshing. I feel sorry for, for all of us in that situation. So over the weekend, we had Cornet's disallowed goal for West Ham against Chelsea. Uh, Tarek Mitchell's own goal for Palace at Newcastle. Um, the PGMOL has acknowledged uh, that these were both mistakes after the Premier League asked the officiating board to investigate them and has said they will cooperate with all inquiries like they've been arrested or something. Um, uh, uh, Wilson, any any firm thoughts on this? Not really. Um, I, it's just one of those subjects where... I just come to hate everybody involved. I hate the players, I hate the referees, I hate the managers, I hate the journalists, and I hate the fans and the people and the world in general. I mean, there's so many things where people just say the most absurd... Yeah, the, 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 yeah you, you mentioned in the introduction, people just lying. People just saying things happened that didn't happen. People claiming the laws say a thing that they don't say. So that's really annoying. This idea that, oh, well, we should only give them 30 seconds to do it, or we should only give them a minute to... It's nonsense. If you're going to stop the game, you might as well get it right. You, you know, suddenly there's this extraordinary pressure on some poor TV director to find the right angle. That something might be obvious from angle six, but not from angles one to five. But because it took them an extra kind of couple of seconds to load that up, the referee, you know, the VAR official doesn't have access to that. It's nonsense. I, I, I have no understanding whatsoever of how you can look at that West Ham goal that was ruled out and see that as a foul. It's just bewildering to me. It just, it just, that just doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, the Newcastle one, I can see how you see, was it Joe Willock clatter into Gator, and you think, oh, well, that's a foul. You probably should then see the reason why Willock clatters into him, which is being shoved by Mitchell. What I'm then slightly baffled by with that is whether you have to give a penalty rather than giving the goal. But I think you probably can give a goal because it's not a foul because he hasn't deliberately jumped into him. But it's just, I just don't understand how we have this game with all this money floating around in it and, and make get decisions like that. But at the same time, I sort of hate this culture of blaming referees and calling referees out um, because these clearly are the best referees we have available. You know, they're, they're assessed on a match-by-match basis and the best ones stay in the Premier League and the weaker ones are replaced by the best ones from the Championship. That, that's how it works. So if you relegate them, you're replacing the people who aren't as good as them. So this, this is the best available option. We have to have referees. These are the best referees we have. We've kind of got to put up with it and we've got to somehow work out a way of not having this mass hysteria that makes their job even harder. Henrik says, is the truth that we don't actually want the laws of the game to be followed in too much detail? That feels slightly accurate with that McAllister goal, Barry, because I think letter of the law, that probably is offside, but none of us want it to be disallowed because it's really good. Um, and Henry says, scrap VAR, except that occasionally refs will make mistakes, just like players do. If we want better refs, improve the culture at grassroots levels to stop the horrendous verbal physical abuse, maybe we'd have a more talented pool of refs to choose from. I mean, both those seem like really sensible points. Uh, VAR isn't going to be scrapped, and I don't think they're particularly sensible points. Um, the, the, the We'll take the McAllister goal first. Mwepo... <sighs> It took four minutes and 30 seconds for the VAR officials to decide Mwepo was offside. Now, that is ridiculous. It's it's just too long. And 
whether even if McAllister had shinned one in, you know, from six yards, I still would think it would be ridiculous. So that's my take on that. And VAR isn't going to be abandoned. So, you know, that's not an option. But if it was, you know, we, we need to remember that why it was introduced in the first place, because referees were getting horrendous amounts of abuse and people thought VAR would be the solution to all their problems. Now, it was pretty obvious it was just going to create a new set of problems where people couldn't see this. So now we are where we are because people wanted it and they got what they wanted and they're still not happy. But it is here to stay. It, it's not going anywhere, whether whether you think it should be abandoned or not. But I, I was I was always against it because I could see what was going to happen. But people were ridiculing me um, on this podcast, as they often do for for many reasons. But I was the subject of much ridicule because I I could sort of see what was going to happen. I agree with Barry. Uh, Wilson, why did you wanted to say they weren't sensible points? I mean, they're not because the, the problem is upon a perception that for all the abuse the referees got, there, there was an understanding that it's it's difficult because your, your eyeline might be blocked or you know, you're, you're a 40 year old, old bloke running as fast as you can and your head might sort of jiggle at the wrong moment. You, you know, it, it, the, the human error was easier to accept. Sort of, sorry, who's, who's, who are these referees sort of like, I don't know, like old weevils or whatever, their heads just <laughs> jiggling at the wrong moment, running, running as fast. Fast as they can. <laughs> These are the rest we want. Wobble-headed <laughs> men, <laughs> cavalierly just careering everywhere as fast as possible. Have you have you tried to recruit um, bald, pedantic, middle-aged men? There's not that many of them who are that. That's where referees have to come from, and there are not that many of them who are particularly athletic. It is. It is. A really unusually bald profession, isn't it? I, I, I did notice that <laughs> yesterday. I was looking at Paul Tierney and thinking. Well, yeah, what a bald profession! I can't, I can't think of any other profession as bald as refereeing. A lot of policemen bald. It's difficult to tell because they often wear hats. Nightclub doormen. Bouncers and referees are very. Maybe, maybe referees should wear hats so then they get less less abuse. <laughs> Obviously, we don't. If they're wearing hats, I mean, given all the sunshine, given climate change allegedly exists, but we'll get to that, <laughs> won't we? Sorry, Wilson. So I, th- I think the point. I think more referees are sorry. More decisions are got right. It's just that our expectations are higher because we think, oh, you know, this sort of big brother cameras everywhere should be infallible. Um, and it's just more frustrating because it's harder to understand how you can look at that West Ham decision and um, you know, watch replays of that and, and, and think that's a foul. Whereas a yeah, referee running in real time, he sees a player jumping over another player, one player goes down, clutching his shoulder. It's easier to understand the mistake. But fundamentally, more, more decisions are got right now. And the, yeah, that, that point about people don't want decisions to be correct. I mean, the McAllister decision was just correct. Just because he hit the ball nicely, mm. it's still correct. He's, you know, no, the idea that we don't, the truth is we, we, we kind of want football to feel right rather than the laws be stuck too accurately. Barney? The, the margins that we're talking about are very hard to call. So then you say, 
is the idea that a really good goal, which starts around the halfway line, there's an offside. A brilliant goal is, is scored, which involves defeating the opposition in some way, doing moments of skill, playing football. If we then call it back and say, technically, it's offside, because under the current technology that we have, we can identify a toenail that's offside. That's not what the offside law was intended for. And you might find that a sensible judge would say, this is not, we can't say with absolute certainty, and this... Different occasions, if a player is in front of the goalkeeper distracting them, if it's very close to goal, then that is what the offside law is intended for. And it's worth being totally minute on it and strict liability. You, you, can't, you can't have goals being allowed or not allowed according to the quality of the strike. Yeah, you, you oh, have to. No, no, no not, not the quality of the goal, the situation in the game. If, Barney, if you, are you saying you want, Barney, are you saying you want judges to do VAR? That's, that's what I think. No, this, there's an idea of, of sensibly interpreting uh, the laws. But Barry, you wanted to pipe in. Well, I just think uh, I, I'm with Barney on that, although I do think it's a bit too idealistic a, a pipe dream to, to hope that we would, you know, take... If you start, you know, we're into the field of interpretation there, so which you know, that's a whole other issue with VAR. But I just think if it takes five minutes to decide if someone who didn't really affect the play was offside, then they are probably not offside. All right, then, let's talk about the actual football, shall we? Uh, we'll begin at Old Trafford. Manchester United 3, Arsenal 1. Thomas says, where will this season's Arsenal Invincibles rank in the annals of history? What, what was this, Barney? A case of both teams being quite good in different ways and one of them just winning in the big moments? Yeah, I thought it was a good game and I thought both teams were good. And you don't always say that. And there's been a lot of games between these teams where you felt this feels like a meandering sideshow at times in the last 10 years. But I, I was there and I felt that this, for the first time in a long time, felt like a real event. And I felt both of these teams are good. And it's going to be a battle of which team is better rather than which team is at the most troublesome stage in its ongoing, fraught rebuilding process. Um, and it felt like the cutting edge or something. I, there were lots of energetic, good young players. And um, I think that Eric Ten Hag... <laughs> Uh, is doing he knows what he's doing you know this is this is something like there are thing good decisions are being made uh, and as does Mikel Arteta I really like his Arsenal team they what I like about them is that they will they will succeed or fail on their own terms like this is simply his team he's created a thing which will work because it's Arteta's Arsenal or won't and that's quite an achievement at a club which has had a manager for so long and a, a dynasty like that and I also really like what Ten Hag is doing with Ronaldo. And I've now decided that I've got a new Ronaldo theory, because you must always have a, must always have a Ronaldo theory. It's actually really good that he's there. Wilson needs a new Ronaldo theory, if anyone does. Sorry, well, carry on. well, what's happening is Manchester United have been fighting the same war since the 1950s. Um, just because Ferguson won that war against the past and created a good version of what people feel Manchester United should be doesn't mean that war wasn't going on. So he, he managed to win that war. Subsequent managers have also been struggling with this fetishising of the past. In a way, Ronaldo being there is very lucky. He is that, that glorious past made flesh. It's there. It's embodied. It's in front of you. It's like you can slay the dragon literally by dealing with Ronaldo. It's not a vague thing. Noises of not Paul Skulls on BT Sports saying stuff. It's Ronaldo. He's in front of you. This says, I am what you once had and what you might have again. 
And Ten Hag's stuff about him in the week, like he wants to make him his pupil and teach him how to play football, I just thought was so good because it's so insulting and so obviously designed to bring it to a head. Like you must, Ronaldo is the only person in football who must be respected. You must always, if you disrespect him, everyone else can be disrespected, but not Ronaldo. And that that was great because, and then leaving on the bench and, you know, playing Marcus Rashford ahead of him, who's now playing very well. He can slay the dragon. It's in front of him. It's come to a head. It's like you you must actually do this thing and then you can move on. So Ronaldo's kind of a gift if you deal with him properly. And I think there is evidence that may be happening. Uh, QPR stat says, it's 35 minutes into your debut, having signed 72 hours earlier, a bit soon to be kissing the badge. Anthony clearly, he, he loves Manchester United. He bleeds red, doesn't he, Wilson? What did you make of his performance and Manchester United in general? I thought he was pretty good. Um, took his goal nicely. I, I thought Ramsdale made it pretty easy for him, but you know, he, he, I think Zinchenko made it pretty easy for him. But you know, he made the run. He took it very, very nicely. I thought, you know, you, all three United goals are those counter-attacking goals where they've got mobility up front. I know two of them came with Ronaldo on the pitch, um, but it, it's that sort of mobility that they they had in their best moments under Solskjaer that, that they haven't had for a year. Um, I guess if you can achieve that with Ronaldo there. That's the best of both worlds. I think it's a pretty hard balance to achieve, but that last sort of 20, 25 minutes, I mean, Larson lost a bit of shape, I think, after substitutions. You know, they, they, they had that. So I think they'd be slightly concerned about periods in the first half and especially that first sort of, well, you know, the second half up until they got their second when Arsenal looked significantly the better side. But, you know, they, they now have the spirit of resolve, the defensive organisation to, to hold out. And, and they, they they can counterattack again, and Rashford, yeah, suddenly is is reborn. Ericsson was great, Baz. Yeah, I think he was the the difference between the sides in the end. Um, just constantly picked the right pass, moved the ball incredibly quickly. The fact that Rashford seems to have be refinding his mojo helped as well, obviously. And I thought Arsenal were good, but I think. Mikel Arteta maybe hit the panic button a bit too early. So he, he's always honoured us to, you know, telling us when, when Arsenal weren't doing so well to trust the process. And it was like yesterday, didn't trust his own process. And as Jonathan said, they made those substitutions, lost their shape, and a minute later were 3-1 down, game over. In, a weirdly interesting stat is uh, Arsenal set a new Premier League record by scoring a 10th consecutive left-footed goal. You'd have thought a team would have to have Andros Townsend for that to be a, a thing, wouldn't you? Be lucky to get ten goals out of Andros Townsend, no, right? <laughs> um, clip that for Troy. Um, but like you said, Barney, I mean Arsenal don't need to panic, do they? They're, they're top of the league. That is a one that Arteta has started this season brilliantly. Yeah, they're they're a good team, um, and they do have a plan. Sometimes in football, just having a plan is enough if everyone agrees that it's the plan. And it it will depend how they react to defeat. I don't think you can say for sure which of these teams will finish above each other in the league, really. I think probably Man United have more. I mean, there was a bit of a thing on the TV coverage of like, oh, just, just days after being in crisis, plucky Manchester United have recovered. And as though it's some amazing revival. 
um, when, you know, they have, they've got Casemiro on the bench. You know, obviously, that's a bit odd. Like, we've now, this <laughs> Scott McTominay was, was surprised as anyone to discover that he's a better midfielder than Casemiro. <laughs> um, but he, he did play very well, actually, and he was key to Anthony doing well. Although Anthony did tackle back a lot. He had Scott McTominay right behind him, which is obviously a good thing if you're an attacking player because he will be an obstacle uh, behind you. But, um you know, many United have loads of really good players and a massive budget. So it's not a miracle. It's not a fairy story um, that they should manage to win some games. But I think Arsenal are a good team. Uh, if they can score enough goals, if they're, they're the regular goal scorers, Jesus, you know, is obviously their kind of big hope with that. With Man United, I thought I saw a lot of goals in that team. They will score goals this season. Um, uh, Arsenal fans would be furious if we didn't mention the disallowed goal but Christian Eriksen was fouled so let's carry on um, uh, let's do the two five twos Brighton five Leicester two uh, Jerry says how close to the pod wrapping will Brendan Rodgers get fired it's hard to work out Barry what the biggest story is here Brighton in fourth playing great football or the crisis at Leicester I, I think the crisis at Leicester is the bigger story I don't think people were expecting them to be this bad I think people thought they would do a bit more, uh, bring in a few more new faces during uh, deadline day. And, and I think they signed one defender. He hasn't got his visa sorted yet, so he, he wasn't playing yesterday. But they were a mess yesterday. Whatever about the scoreline, but just the performance was diabolical. Their defending was diabolical. Players weren't trying. They were all bickering and arguing with each other, pointing fingers of blame at each other. And you would have to say they they look to be in big trouble. And I would not be at all surprised if, as is customary, uh, with a manager getting sacked as soon as we've, we've sent our recordings to producer Silas, I wouldn't be at all surprised if Brendan Rodgers got sacked. And I suspect he might want to get sacked uh, just with the the comments he's been making. Um, if he resigns, he, he won't get his payoff, obviously. So, I yeah, I, I have a feeling he would welcome uh, the, his P45 and a big payout because that is a shit show. Yeah, it feels like everybody would welcome it. It feels like the, a lot of people who don't watch Leicester a lot sort of have some sympathy for Rodgers, but he doesn't necessarily that excited to be there. The fans don't necessarily want him to be there. And I wonder, Wilson, if Leicester fans are looking at the Premier League thinking, you know, you, you just have to be not as bad as the other three as three teams. And it is very early in the season. But like a lot of those teams that we thought would be really bad, certainly like Fulham, aren't. And it, it, that may not carry on, but actually you could you could be a potentially a slightly bigger side and really struggle this year. Yeah, you could be. I, I think think the what what you know the the, the consequence of the two two and a quarter billion euros expenditure from Premier League clubs in the summer is that the middle class is bigger and better and more competitive than ever before. Now, that might not mean that they can necessarily compete with the, the top six, but it does mean that yeah, it's, 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 not, it's not difficult for teams you sort of think of as being quite established Premier League clubs to get themselves into, into difficulty. That I think you know, West Ham are seeing that this season. I don't think they're much worse than last season, but suddenly, rather than challenging for Europe, they're, they're looking slightly anxiously over their shoulders. Like that, I'm sure West Ham will be fine. But the fact that Leicester were not involved in that spending and the fact they lost for Farmer is is clearly you know, a huge issue for them. The fact that people like Tielemans, I, I thought Tielemans actually was, was okay. I said Tielemans and Madison clearly did want to leave. 
Um, in fact, they're still there. You don't quite know how they'll respond to the adversity. So yeah, you do sort of feel that that there's some kind of break is needed. And the thing with Rogers, I mean, I, I always sort of think that, uh, and you know, I've said, I've said this about about Frank Lampard. A good sort of quick gauge of the work that a manager's doing is how many how many goals you concede from set pieces. But that's the thing that managers should be able to put right. And Rogers just hasn't put it right for well at least a season and a half. And that that would really concern me. On, on to on to Brighton, Barney. Is is Graham Potter getting more out of these players than he should, or than other managers would, or are they just good players who we would talk about more if they were at bigger clubs? Yeah, I, I don't. I think they're they're good. They've got good recruitment. They're good players. They all uh, are selected with a role in mind and a clear plan. And Brighton's just that kind of thing. Like a, sometimes you can get a a leg up on the opposition in sport just by with an absence of stupidity. It's what it's what Manchester City have done at the top end. Like it's almost cheating not having morons in charge of anything. Uh, it, it really it really works. And but Brighton have sort of intelligent people in the right job doing the right things and you know you look at Manchester United where who are playing the game straight they're being honest they're employing traditionally confused egotistical people in positions of authority which is what football is about and they're losing out to other teams who've who've kind of gamed this they're doping the system by by having competent people who know what they're doing and don't have a personal agenda. So it's kind of what Brighton are doing lower down the scale. And and we marvel at their incredibly logical decision. We marvel at their lack of stupidity. Um, but the players, similarly, at Brighton, they speak quite a lot. You hear the players speak and they all seem in charge of what they're doing. They seem to, they talk kind of like how I'm used to American sports people talking, where they seem to know what the game plan is and they talk about their personal brief and their statistics and how they want. And it, it, sometimes it's quite surprising because there's a culture of, you know, ingrained anti-intellectualism in English football where you wouldn't talk about that in the past. And, and Brighton is just a, a clever club, uh, I think, with clever players and good players. Barry? Uh, and what happens with clubs like that sometimes is they become victims of their own success. And I wonder if... I think there's a strong possibility the England job will become available around Christmas time. And I wonder if uh, perhaps Brighton might lose their manager to England at Christmas time. I don't know. Let's stick with well-run clubs and Brentford. He leads 5-2. Ivan Tony's hat-trick. Fred says, is Ivan going to Qatar, Barry? What do you reckon? I wouldn't have him on the playing to Qatar, mainly because I think he should be on the playing to Qatar. (laughs) I don't want England to win the World Cup. Uh, he's certainly knocking on the door, isn't he? Um, Dominic Calvert-Lewin probably almost certainly won't be on the plane. He's not playing at the moment and he hasn't been playing particularly well when he hasn't been injured. So there is certainly a vacancy and I can't think of anyone better than Tony, really, to put have in that role. I mean, the... the, the... Yeah, okay. I, and I, Rashford, and Rashford is on form again. I mean, it's—I don't know how many he will pick. Something. Yeah, I've never been particularly convinced by Tammy Abraham. I'm—I'm I'm not sure why, but I haven't. I—I I would certainly give Tony an opportunity. Um, I mean, the two goals he scored is the free kick, and then his. I think I heard someone describe it as a video game goal. Uh, they were just outstanding, and. He, he he's good at set pieces, he can take penalties. I think if Harry Kane was injured, why not, Ivan Tony? 
Jesse Marsh, I think, was was sent off, Wilson. And I, I actually felt for him in this game because Brentford get a penalty from, I know we've done the VAR bit, but, you know, Brentford get the VAR bit, their penalty, which I think was a penalty. Leeds should have had a penalty. And I thought it really rubbed salt into wounds that the ref stopped the game for the most innocuous foul about five seconds after Leeds should have had that penalty as a free kick for Brentford. Yeah, I, and that's it's another one where I just, I can't conceive how you can look at that and... I, I understand the ref not seeing it because of the shirt pull, which okay was outside the box. His, his view may have been obstructed by uh, the player pulling the shirt, but there's then a you know a, a hand on the shoulder, there's a little clip of the ankle. Yeah, it's it's a it's an obvious penalty. So I understand why Jesse Marsh is very frustrated by that. Um, but you know he's he's been a sort of prickly touchline presence all season, and you sort of felt the red card was was coming in his direction at some point. So he he probably overreacted to it, but it should have been a penalty. He, he uh, Jesse Marsh predicted his own red card, didn't he? Last week he said, "You know, I'm not I'm not I'm not going to do his voice. I'm not going <laughs> to st- please do, please do <laughs> no. Barney. <laughs> Barney's Barney Ronay's impressions is not. A, an, I, I didn't think we'd go there this early, but I'm 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 absolutely keen for it. I, I'd love to. I'm addicted to watching Jesse Marsh. He's just inc- I could watch him talking about anything. Um, he's just. He's hilarious. I mean, he's always telling everyone what's happening. He, uh, you know, I mean, obviously this is, I'm saying this as someone who's always telling people what's happening, but I find him incredibly watchable. Um, they, they just had a little clip of him <laughs> on the match of the day version of this. They obviously, he obviously did a really long rant and they just thought, what are we going to do with this? We, we've got to somehow have a bit of Jesse Marsh, but it's like a long incoherent rant. So they just had him for about five seconds going, Brentford is a smart team. And then they kind of cut it. Thomas Frank saying something sensible. I'd love to hear all the other stuff, he said. Um, he, I mean, he was justified in his anger because it was unfair. But And I love listening to him talk and he's often sensible. But I, I think the way he acts on the touchline is pretty silly, to be honest. And I, I, the fact is people need to copy this stuff. And he, needs to, he needs to calm down. I think it will become a joke. And I don't think the players will be able to take it seriously after a while. So he needs to get a grip of himself because he's becoming the story a bit with them, which is not good. Because Brentford did play really well and even Tony's hat-trick was great. And that is kind of what happened there, even though there was a bit of an injustice and blah, blah, blah. Um, he needs to he needs to find another way of being watchable. It is worth mentioning, Barry, Patrick Bamford's miss as well. <laughs> yeah, he, he seemed genuinely bewildered himself because he had a pretty straightforward get on the end of a cross steer his home from close range and instead he he performed a goal line clearance that any defender would be extremely proud of and then he he ended up sitting on his backside on the turf just looking around going how how did that just happen you know it's almost as if he defied the laws of physics that's how clever patrick bamford is <laughs> it is and on a, on a weekend when we're slagging off far the Embuema goal was given by VAR and that overturned an incorrect offside decision. So it got at least it got that right. It did. Um, and really, the headlines should be about that. And that'll do for part one. Part two will begin at the city ground. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. 
Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, Nottingham Forest 2, Bournemouth 3. Uh, this, Barney, was a fantastic comeback from Bournemouth. Um, absolutely vital for their season. I think it's not overstating it to say. And nobody can have seen it coming. And the just, I mean, obviously football fans like it when they win, but the look of joy on the fans' faces when Jaden Anthony put that third goal in was utterly delightful. Yeah, it was an amazing game. It was sort of like, um, it's how you want how you want football to look when you don't have any investment in either team. You want a game like that. Um, and yeah, the the energy, I mean, this is why people like the league, I think. The the incredible energy created by the whole situation. And the, you know, the goal scorers. The, Bournemouth are kind of a, a nice team as well. Um, and I was pleased with Dominic Solanke, who did very well in the championship and you kind of like players to step up and do well. Um the Nottingham Forest experiment is is fascinating. On the other hand, um, they have a lot of fans in the media, and th- there's a lot of feel good around them being back because everyone sort of likes them as a a team. They're a sort of team that you like, you know, big city team. You have fond memories, but the recruitment strategy is completely insane. I mean, it's not really been sort of discussed at all. But how, how is that supposed to work? What kind of hand are they giving the manager here? It will be very very interesting to see how it works out. Do you think everyone likes them as well because there's no sponsor on the kit? It's just so lovely to see. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure why it has happened and it will probably change, but it's just a purity about it. Yeah, well, the purity is that they're holding out for a massive deal that no one's offered them right. so far. Is The okay. purity is that they're very greedy. The owner is greedy right. enough. That to, is pure, to, isn't it? To, no, but what's good about it is um, when teams didn't have, when there wasn't that there, you'd have a bigger badge. The design of the shirt is designed, it's designed for... A sponsor's logo. So it's got this very small stuff around the top and then this huge empty space. It's a really weird shirt. There's never been a shirt with so much empty space on it because it's it's designed to have something and that something isn't there, which um, is both disconcerting and also kind of cool. Um, how, how long will the Gary O'Neill bounce be, Jonathan? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I mean, they've, they've clearly been significantly better in the two games since he took over. I think you've got to give him enormous credit for making a tactical shift at half time. They, well, they, they went from a back four to a back three and the, the, the two wing backs got forward and Forrest couldn't really react to that. And that, that would concern me um, quite a bit, to be honest, if I was a Forrest fan, that, that, um, that they weren't able to react to that. It, it might be that, that they, you know, they have got all these blokes who never met each other before, so it's quite hard to reorganise. And that, that, that may come. Um, I also just sort of, you look at the Bournemouth job and you sort of think, well, who... What, what what established experience manager would, would want that? It's a pretty difficult job with not a huge amount of money to go in there. So, so maybe maybe it makes sense to at least give Gary O'Neill another two, three, four weeks and see if this can be sustained because he clearly you know, has been impressive his two games. He clearly has a connection with the players. So, so maybe you know, keeping him on is the, the, the least bad strategy. There was a particularly egregious fire dis- decision here as well, which pretty much went unremarked upon because of all the other ones, but that was Nottingham Forest's second goal, the penalty. Lloyd Ka- Kelly penalised for handball. It was a ridiculous decision because, he, you know, there was nothing he could do. And that wasn't overturned, which I thought was odd. Yeah, this wasn't actually a VAR decision. It was the referee's decision. He went, went to his screen and stuck by his guns and decided he had seen a, a handball. But you're right. I mean, it was ludicrously close. I mean, what he possesses arms. I mean, that's <laughs> the crime there. I don't know what he could have done there. He but wasn't isn't that really... a law of, isn't that a laws of the game problem, not a Michael Oliver problem? I mean, 
Yeah. It's a yeah, ridiculous but... law. It should never be a penalty. But I think Oliver might be right, yeah. given what Kalina and Ellery tell him to do. Lloyd Kelly should just have his arms removed, amputated <laughs> at the shoulders. You know, if he really wants to be a top level football, go the extra yard. You know, have them <laughs> amputated so it doesn't happen again. Yeah, well done, Phil Billing. That goal was absolutely brilliant. To Stamford Bridge, Chelsea 2, West Ham 1. I mean, the end of this game, I know we've talked about the Corne Dislow goal. The end of this game, Jonathan, was absolutely brilliant, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. And, and, um, I, I, I sort of I keep coming back to this with David Moyes. My my big doubt about him, well, two big doubts about him. One is I, I think he he struggles with people who have not come through, st- struggles with players who have not come through a a British footballing background. So the fact that, for, that um, West Ham have signed uh, four players from the French league plus Emerson Palmieri, who I think only played twenty league games for Chelsea, and Maxwell Cornet, who. I'd had one season at Burnley. I, I, I wonder if there's a disconnect there. That's the sort of, you know, sort of, the sort of um, reasons why I think it might not quite work this season. But the the other problem I have with him is he sort of has this very sort of, you know, this sort of idea of sort of 15 years ago or so where you get you get a lead or you have a point you want to keep and you just drop deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And I, I you know, I, I, know, I know I'm saying it's my Sunderland hat on, but that season when, when he led Sunderland to relegation. Again and again and again, Sunderland letting goals in the last 10, 15 minutes. And often it was because Sunderland just dropped deeper and deeper and deeper. And it happened at West Ham. Uh, the, the Sunderland were, were, I mean, it was a terrible game, but Sunderland marginally better of a 0-0 draw. And then they, you know, the last 20 minutes, they just retreat. And um, Winston Reid ended up banging one in and, and West Ham got the points. And this was a similar thing. They get the 1-0 lead and they just drop deeper and deeper and deeper. And yeah, Tuchel makes attacking substitutions and credited him for that. And Chilwell gets on and you know, gets forward really well, but he just handed the initiative to Chelsea that they, you know, it was almost willingly handing over control of the game. And I just sort of think that's a slightly old-fashioned way of trying to trying to protect something you want to keep. But isn't that slightly harsh when you are the the smaller team and you've got a point at Stamford Bridge? I mean, that's not a bad position to be in. And you know, Corne doesn't hit the post. No, but it, but it, it's it's. You, you can. I, my, my point is not you, know, you try to protect the lead. I think that's the right thing to do. I just think the way you do that in modern football is not to, not to sort of recreate mafficking. You don't have to kind of go back to the edge of your own box. You can you can try and protect the lead by holding possession, by by you know, not just sort of sitting deep and letting the opposition have the ball in your half and, and hoping you can you can you can clear it. And this was a classic case of Thomas Tuchel talking absolute nonsense saying he thought it was a foul after the VAR. A bit like Vieira, which we'll obviously get to, saying that was a foul. It's just utterly ridiculous. I just wonder if, ref, if managers should... The trouble is, isn't it, is that the, the, the touchline reporter has to establish a relationship with these managers so they can't say, excuse me, Thomas, that's bullshit. Like, we can say it here because Thomas Tuchel is unlikely to be on the panel on Wednesday. But I would love to have been there to go, he goes, that's a foul. And I'd go, Thomas, it isn't. But like, the, the, the sort of nature of being Jeff Shreves is you have to just go I can't I can't ask a follow-up which will insult you yeah but I I get the point about I I think Jeff could do that to be honest I I don't see what the point of Tuchel saying something completely absurd is in the first place I mean just say yeah we were lucky but we'll take it thanks Um, we got away with one there um, you know, would anyone criticise him? Would would Chelsea fans be angry because he's 
said something completely obvious. It's not like the the goal can be retrospectively added back on again just because he thinks his side were lucky. But, but I think I think I think there was a a point to it. I think he said that because his goalkeeper had made a mistake, and that was where that situation came from. So he was backing, you know, he's backing his man because the real the real issue there was the Mendy's not Mendy made a few mistakes recently, and goalkeeping is a big confidence position, and he's backed his goalkeeper. And I think that's why he had to maintain that that was a foul. It was it was I probably wouldn't have done it in other circumstances. Um, uh, Brozier made a bit of a difference for Chelsea. They've got Aubameyang as well uh, when he gets fit after uh, his broken jaw in that horrific incident at, at his house um, when uh, Robbers broke in. Um, what, what do you think Aubameyang is a sensible signing, Jonathan? Probably because he is what they need. I mean, he, you know, Aubameyang brings uh, a level of risk, but good Aubameyang is is very very good. And 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 I think if Havertz is always going to be a you're, you're sort of the, you, the focal point up front that limits how you can play and it, it probably limits your goal threat I think in certain games it probably is the right thing to do but having a more orthodox centre forward I think would be useful for Chelsea given that the, the sort of most consistent criticism of them in the 18 months under Tuchel is, has been that they dominate the game through midfield but then don't take their chances Yeah, I was going to say sort of feel Bro- Brozier should have been given a run I thought he was excellent at Southampton mm. I feel that you know he, he could do that job it looked like he did it pretty well Against West Ham, yeah, I mean that, that's true, but you know he is he is very young, and we don't see him in training every day. And I, I think with something like that, you just got to you got to trust Tuchel's judgment on that. So, but yeah, I mean, look, I, everything I've seen of him, he looks a very very talented player. Uh, Manchester City dropping points is always a story, isn't it? They drew one one at Aston Villa. Barney, how impressed were you with with Villa? I mean, that to, to get back to hold City for that long and then to be resilient enough to get back into the game was something I did not expect. Yeah, yeah, it was a really good. I mean, it was a very spirited performance. When you see Man City go 1-0 up and, you know, Haaland has scored. and His goal was amazing. Uh, when, when He was kind of flying. It was incredible. I mean, his standing leap to put that ball in was just inc- it was terrifying. I mean, the fact he can um, fly as well is really not fair. Like, he's yeah. good enough anyway. Uh, I guess just as significant is where he was because, you know, he was just in exactly the right place and... You know, he didn't touch the ball that much, but he—I thought he actually linked the play pretty well in that game. The bits that I saw, and looked quite, quite kind of—I mean, he—he he is really talented. It—it it will fit. There is a slight thing that he scored half of Man City's goals this season, which is is different. You know, that has not happened with that team before. He'll soon pass uh, last season's top scorer. He'll probably pass that in the next three or four games. So it's a different thing. It is a different way of playing, and you wouldn't. Normally expect a Man City team of last season go one 0 up at Villa. They're, they're going to win. They're going to win 2 three 0 I don't know if it's anything to do with Haaland. Villa were really did play really well and uh, looked really committed in that second half. They're really playing for the manager, which is a big deal at that stage. Um, but you know the City Haaland thing is fascinating. Is he a monster or is he an animal? I keep hearing both of those things. He's an animal. He is he an, a monstrous animal? Is he a kind of a hybrid of the two? I don't does he know not which get, one. Does he get? Beast as well. He doesn't get beast. He gets machine, well. machine, machine. As well. Machine, yeah. Animal I, I would go with machine. I would go with machine. I think superhuman, superhuman, a superhuman machine. machine. Yeah, yeah. He's he's so. one of those. There's four or five categories, and he's one of them. He fits all of them. I mean, the cross was quite good, Baz. To be fair, it was exquisite. Uh, possibly the 
greatest cross I think I've ever seen. Because it, it was wow. just yeah, I'm I've never seen Ethan Pinnock. I mean Ethan Pinnock probably has a cross like that in his locker. But probably, um, yeah. or Salomon Rondon. But um oh, it was just the trajectory of the ball, the manner in which it was just just out of our, um Emmy Martinez's reach. And uh it's it's nice that there was somebody there to get on the end of it. Do, do you think do you think there'll be a reverse Trent Alexander Arnold conversation where people say you've got to start playing Kevin De Bruyne at right back <laughs> just so he can put more crosses into the box? Um, um, Villa are probably the story of this game, though Wilson. Like to, to and, and as Barney said, like absolutely, Steven Gerrard desperately needed a performance. No one gave them a hope in this game. Yeah, he really did. I mean, I, I think they've been. I mean, they had a terrible end to last season, didn't they? So I think even now they've only won three of the last seventeen. And uh, that against Everton this season and Norwich and Burnley last season. So it's been a long time since they've beaten anybody good. Um, I, I'm sort of, I sort of, in my head, I was already thinking, well, who are the candidates to replace Gerard? And I don't think he's out of trouble yet by any means. But that, you know, a getting a draw against Manchester City and playing as well as that. Earns him some credit, and B, as Barney said, it, it it suggests that the players haven't given up on him yet. Villa have got Leicester next, which is quite a big one for both teams, isn't it? I mean, you could see Brendan Rodgers at Villa, couldn't you? That 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 is a fit that seems to make sense. I feel like every Leicester manager goes to a Villa. They swap between those. You know, once you're in the Midlands, you're sort of stuck in like a sort of valley in the Midlands, and you just sort of potter between all those teams. Um, Manchester City are level on points with Spurs. They play each other next Saturday at the Etihad, uh, which. Uh, might be good, might not, I guess. But Spurs beat Fulham 2-1. Brian says, is there a chance that Conte's Spurs might be just sufficiently solid and dull, yet create enough to actually win the Premier League, Barney? Oh, no, I mean, I don't, <laughs> I don't think so. Um, but there are, there are some pretty good teams around. Um, not necessarily teams that will win the, the Premier League, but will take uh, points um, off Spurs. I mean, uh, I, Conte, I do have... Conte does is a game changer. I still believe that. I think with him at to the helm, all is possible. Um, but there are. I don't know if there's quite enough. Is there quite enough depth in Spurs now? I mean, it's all still coming together, isn't it? Um, I don't want to sort of sound unduly pessimistic. And I'm a big Richarlison fan. Um, he was fun. Yeah, he was great in this game. Yeah, really. Fun. He's a really fun. Fun player. And I don't think we've seen... I don't think even Richarlison knows what Richarlison is quite capable of yet. His powers are still largely unexplored. I mean, I I watched him at the Olympics when Brazil won the Olympics. I watched all those games. I was there and he just ran around like a mad thing. He was exhausted by the end of it. And they won and he was really good. But what is Richarlison? What's his end point? Um, it, that will be an interesting point for me this season. Yeah, I mean, next week's game, I think, is, is fascinating because City have flip-flopped on them half a dozen times already this season that you sort of think oh they're unstoppable Holland's going to score you know 300 goals and, and you know, what can you do and and then you sort of think well hang on they've actually been two you know we've been two goals behind in two games already this season they've, they've let a lead slip at Villa and, and you sort of you think is that that you know that idea that's sort of become sort of pretty fixed over the last I guess five years or so that you need 95 points to win the league so you can only afford to drop 20. And so the fact that Liverpool have dropped nine already is a, you know, feels like a crisis. Well, maybe if City are dropping points, maybe if they are a bit more open, um, may, maybe it will just be a 90-point season or an 88-point season. And they're better. They're much more fun. 
if, you know, if if losing a game in in September doesn't sort of end your season, that's that's better. It, 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 so, I th- and, uh, you know, you obviously then have a World Cup, which is a huge randomising factor. Although probably to City's benefit because Holland can have five weeks off to go and plug himself into the thing that. <laughs> <laughs> You know, if he, if he, you know, if he carries on at this rate, he's going to score sixty-four goals this season, and maybe he'll increase as well because he had some, te- you know, getting used to the team. He could That's get up true. to eight, eighty, maybe. Do we want that to happen? I mean, part of it will be quite funny. He's got eighty. Well, it'd be, goals be funny if he scored eighty and they didn't win the league. That's that's the best of both worlds. That he's, is true. If he, if he scored eighty. In about two hundred years, people look back going, "God, football was ridiculous." <laughs> you know, like that, that that Boxing Day in the sixties, where every team scored ten, or you know, your Buster Buster Wilmot scored a million goals for uh, Huddersfield in the twenties or something. But you know, I don't know if that's actually hey, what, what is, or not. is the record? Dixie Dean sixty? Is that the record? Yeah, yeah. You must. I thought that would be ingrained into your psyche, wasn't it, George Cam- Camsell? Oh, he, Camsell, yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He overtook Camsell the season after Dixie Dean because they'd changed, they'd fiddled around with the offside law. Can you imagine the discussions back then in the uh, in the Pinkens and the free sheets about this confounded new offside law, which is ruining the game? And, I mean, I can't just imagine them. I can remember them because I've read them <laughs> repeatedly. What, are there are there are there pages and pages about Dixie Dean's toenail, Wilson? <laughs> <laughs> he would have scored eighty if it hadn't been for that. Well, no, because um, the, the new offside law actually made it easier to score goals. I think the idea was it slightly devalued the achievement. Right. Uh, okay. Like goals, goals per game went Dixie up. Dixie from... he's a fraud, isn't he? Yeah. Goals per game went up by almost double between twenty four five and twenty five six as, as teams wow. got used to this new offside law. Blimey. Um, one quirk of that Richarlison uh, performance, Barry, was scoring and taking his shirt off. Yeah. So he scored a. Um, well, it would have made it three one. Celebrated with wild abandon. Removed his shirt. The goal was disallowed. Uh, but the, he, he kept the booking he got for taking off his shirt, which I can understand why, because I think it's for incenting the, or inciting the crowd, and they were incited even if the goal didn't stand, but it seems a bit ridiculous. It's a daft law, isn't it? Anyway, all right, that'll do for part two. Part three will begin at Goodison. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, Liam says, am I alone in thinking that the best possible result for a derby filled with spite and vitriol is nil-nil? Everyone goes home in a fury. No one is happy. Disallowed goals are a definite bonus. Football at its best. I thought this game, Wilson, was superb. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a really, really good weekend of football. But, and this was a good start to it. So, I mean, I think this game, was it, on, was it second last on match of the day? Which, for most side derby, to be relegated that deep. And, and yeah, it was a good game. There's loads of incidents. Both goalkeepers were absolutely brilliant. Um, Jordan Pickford gets a lot of stick, but I think he's now got the highest save percentage of anybody in the Premier League this season. Um, and Liverpool, as you've been saying, aren't, aren't quite at it. And, and this was a much more uh, focused, organised, committed, evident performance than we've seen for a while. And Barney, we obviously have to continually compare Stephen Gerrard and Frank Lampard. And Gerrard needed a performance this weekend and so did Lampard. And he really got one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but who got who got more of a performance? That's the question. I don't know can, the answer to that. I don't know actually. Can they both get a performance on the same weekend? Would Paul Scholes have got a better or Michael Carrick? What Michael kind of Carrick would have done. Yeah, would, would he have got? 
Um, yeah, you know, and Frank Lampard, it's really hard to tell. Um, it's really surprising the relationship between Frank Lampard and Everton's fans. It's not something I expected that there'd be this kind of this love in this affection and but it seems to have happened um and that's good i suppose it's nice people from uh, sort of slightly different different worlds coming together it's hard to tell whether he's good or not although maybe he's getting better you know maybe they they do seem to be playing with a more coherent kind of idea and or the stuff that people slightly laughed at like him saying the team has to play with balls you know where are your balls um it kind of seemed silly but um he has been proved I don't know, right in some way. Um, and uh, obviously Everton still have a lot of very good players and should be doing better than this and they're still down the bottom of the table. But it's either an act of styling and and kind of uh, stagecraft or I feel that something is kind of happening there with them. Uh, Neil Mopai's balls didn't go in the goal, Wilson, which is sort of where they normally don't go. Uh, I don't know how good a signing it is. It felt like very too sort of... He, he, what, he had one saved and he put one wider at the post. I can't remember, but... He didn't score, and that's what Neil Mopai does. Yeah, there was that, that chance he had, I don't, was it what, 10, 15 minutes from the end when there's sort of three Everton players breaking in the box. His first yeah. touch was slightly heavy. And then he's he behind of, him, we scooped it. That and you sort of think, oh, it's it's Mopai. Let's start, you know. But I mean, yeah, he's obviously a good player, but he's not a player you would you would desperately want to have you have a game breaking chance of 10 minutes to go. And he's sort of. Yeah, he sort of stubbed it in Allison's shoulder. So, I, I, is he a good signing? I think so because he, he knits things together. Is he going to score loads of goals? No, because he's Neil Mopo. Um, Connor Cody's disallowed goal. I mean, the the celebration was absolutely wild, wasn't it? It was, it was utterly brilliant moment for him until it was chalked off. Oh, so I, I've got a theory about this. I I, I think he's still a committed Liverpool fan, and and. He was smart, smart enough to get himself offside. So he knew it wouldn't count, but he could prove himself to uh, <laughs> to the Everton fans by celebrating wildly. What I think he's under, under deep cover. Um, Barney, your, what, what are your sort of general Liverpool thoughts at this stage of the season? Um, well, I think that they um, do have an issue in the. I mean, I wrote a preview for this game where I tried to ex- express this, but they, you know, that start there isn't. Liverpool's kind of success of the last five years didn't have to happen. Like it was a, a really brilliantly managed thing. And it's possible that the methodology of they, they did tend to exhaust teams. You know, Liverpool were the most relentless team in the country. You could see opposition players getting tired around 60 minutes, not just because of the duels and the running at you and the kind of early Salah flying down the wing stuff, but sort of very quick possession football. They had these series of drilled movements that they go across the pitch and they constantly tire you out. But I think other teams have raised their levels and looked at it. You know, Premier League is good in that it keeps on evolving and teams have matched them uh, in that intensity and the team's got old together um, and it's quite hard to replace someone like Sadio Mane who is constant tackles and constant goals um, it's a really rare quite fragile thing and I think it's about whether the meaning of that team and whether it can be re-summoned that kind of that kind of energy uh, out of this group of players or out of little tweaks and additions and that's the challenge that Klopp faces and he's a really good manager and and maybe he can, he can, I'm sure he can do it because he's, he's brilliant. But that's, I think, the process they have to go through. 
Um, Jordan Pickford was uh, brilliant in this game. Um, also, I like this question from Collins. And does any team revere the armband more than Liverpool? Henderson starts, then it goes to Van Dyke, but then Milner comes on. Elliot scampers around with it dutifully, passing it around, all under the watchful eye of the camera. Does it really matter? There's a huge moment of who has to be the captain uh, when they come onto the pitch. Uh, let's go to St. James's Park, Newcastle nil, Palace nil. I mean, this game, Barry, was pretty much all about the disallowed goal that we have discussed. Michael says, Newcastle, more fun to watch, a positive atmosphere, ultimately 7 points, 11th. Should they really be doing better? They should be doing better for the amount of money they've spent. um, They've won one, drawn four, lost one. And they should have won this game, but they didn't. And they are entitled to feel aggrieved because, as Eddie Howe said last week, he, he just wants everything to be fair. Um, and the irony of his comment was not lost on quite a few people. But uh, no, those results aren't good enough. And uh, while I don't think he's under any pressure whatsoever, um, they they should be winning more of those games. And they should have won this one, even without the disallowed goal. But uh, they'll probably start improving. Um, and then after the game, it was like with Thomas Tuchel... Uh, Eddie Howe was interviewed. I don't think it was the correct decision, and of course he's right. Patrick Vieira said, "I think it was a foul," which is <laughs> on, ab- absolute nonsense. <laughs> it's not bullshit from Patrick Vieira. Utterly hilarious. How you can do it with a straight face, isn't it? I just, I don't know. They're not pre-programmed. Is he? Is he defending Tarek Mitchell for pushing Joe Willock and then scoring an own goal and think it will boost his confidence? There was a suggestion that. Lee Mason was the VAR official here and Michael Salisbury was the referee. And it's he's quite an inexperienced Premier League ref. I think this was only fifth or sixth game. And there was a suggestion that maybe Lee Mason bullied him into uh, changing his mind. Is that why we can't hear the VAR when he's like, you will change this. You will, Michael. You might have hair, but I'm part of the bald refereeing VAR mafia. And if you don't change this, the next time you're at Stockley Park, they'll be held to pay. We'll flush your hair down the toilet. That's what will happen. That's what Lee Mason will do. Um, Jody asks, do you think Che Adams can throw a Malteser in the air and hit his head? Because there's no way he can catch it in his mouth. Wolves beat Southampton 1-0. But the Che Adams miss was utterly hilarious, Wilson, wasn't it? Yeah, he almost he almost paid for trying to like, do a good header. I mean, sorry, I'm sure there's a more eloquent way of putting that. But if he just sort of run on to He'd it... He'd stood still. I think if he'd stood totally still, it would have hit him still, put his, put his arms behind his back so they, they just couldn't get in the way and sort of nudged him with his chest, then it, it would have counted. But... By sort of trying to do a proper header, he, he managed to mistime it because the, the, the ball was sort of looping so slowly. And then his arms were too high and his head was too low. And yeah, I mean, astonishing miss. Well, not miss, um, but astonishing cock-up. Is, is there a case to be made that Southampton are the new Everton, as in what is the point of Southampton? I know we all relegated them in the, the season preview, but I mean, they should have won this game and they lost. And that's sort of a Southampton thing now. And I, I don't know. Are, do Southampton fans think Ralph Hasenhutl is doing a good job? I have no idea whether he's doing a good job Don't you think they're more interesting not. this year than, than normal? Like they've got some really good, interesting young players. Barney, you want to come yeah, in? Yeah, well, I, I feel with Southampton, I was watching them there. I feel they're a team that's got away from me. They're sort of like a friend who you haven't seen for a couple of years. And then you find out they're married. Like I'm looking at them thinking... 
I've I've not really something's happened there that I don't quite. I, I always where's Shane Long? Yeah, I always I've traditionally had this problem with Wolves, who I find really hard to understand, and I can't, I somehow can't. But it's now Southampton, who I feel I've neglected and don't quite understand. And there are quite good players, like you say, some good young players who I don't I don't really know about. And obviously that's my problem. But um, I wonder if that's a problem for the team as well. In that um, you know there seems to have been a bit of change there. Uh, Wolves are signing Diego Costa. Um, he's been without a club since leaving Brazilian side Atletico Mineiro in January. Every part of me hopes that he's been eating solidly since January when he, when he turns up for his first game. He's bulging out of it. But, uh, you know, they uh, they need a centre forward. They need a presence up there. And that's certainly what he is. Um, uh, look, we need to uh, uh, rattle on, but um, well done to Celtic. He beat Rangers in the old firm. We'll obviously talk a lot about Celtic on Wednesday's pod because they play Real Madrid in the Champions League. Um, that was a massive win for them on Saturday and it is a massive game for them against Real Madrid on Tuesday. Uh, Susie Rack will join us hopefully on Wednesday's pod to talk about the Lionesses. They qualified for the World Cup in Australia next year with a 2-0 win in Austria. Uh, friend of the pod, Salon, Andy Hickman, um, uh, tweeted uh, after winning 2-0 in front of 400-plus people uh, in uh, a game for Dulwich Hamlet, including Simon. Simon heard the uh, plug on the Guardian Football Weekly and went down on his own to watch Dulwich Hamlet, cured his hangover with a souvlaki, a beer and some new friends, uh, which is the life of so getting fans for Dulwich Hamlet. Jamie says, on the subject of inoffensive crime dramas, are any members of the panel Death in Paradise fans? And if so, can they rank the actors who played the lead detective? I'd go one, Ardlo Han- Hanlon, two, Chris Marshall, three, Ben Miller, four, Ralph Little. Um, I would say this is the goat of inoffensive murder dramas, Jonathan Wilson. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think I'd go, I think Miller first as the original. Mm-hmm. Um, I like Marshall quite a lot. Yeah, I, yeah. Maybe, maybe I go Miller, Marshall, Hanlon, Little. But I think mm. they're all good. That's not, they're all good. Yeah, yeah. To be the fourth best person who's played you know, a detective on Death in Paradise is, 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 a, is a lifetime achievement. It's a great thing. It's, it's more than any of us have ever done. The, the, the thing I love about Death in Paradise is just how many things, how many events take place on this tiny island. Like this, it's the Tour de France. What's the Tour de France? Like it's a totally insane place. Just like this. And also, like, wouldn't it be the prison? Is the prison must be absolutely chock full of really quite middle class murderers? It's all a very weird place. Um, you know, every single activity. You're sharing a cell with June Whitfield. <laughs> but have you? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> have you um have you watched uh ridley yet no i haven't, got, I haven't done yes that. I, I, I have home. i didn't see last night but i i, I was you yeah, know quietly encouraged by the first one uh, uh, not, i not... saw the first one and knew immediately how it was going to i mean uh, very early in proceedings i oh, really what was going i, to I, be I thought it was nicely paced i sort of i felt i worked out just before him uh, but, but yeah, maybe maybe you're a better detective than me, Barry. Maybe we just got to accept that. Possibly. Um, you, you I can be, wouldn't you... mind you. I wouldn't mind the two of you as a as a pair, <laughs> uh, you know, um, of detectives. Like people were trying to work out which out of the four of if the four of us are the A team, who is who. And it feels like I don't. It's, a, it's really hard to tell, isn't it? Because I feel like none of us are the face man. Really. None of us are Mr. Uh, T. None of us are Murdoch. Uh, I know Barney, Barney pities the fool, doesn't he? Barney, <laughs> Barney, Barney, yes, Barney yes, could yes. be B.A. Yeah, he could. Yeah, I true. can see him yeah. pitying the fool. I, I, I've uh, seen the efforts they go to get him on flights. It's like... <laughs> 
Um, anyway, let's uh, uh, let's wrap this up um, uh, with a musical finale. We've been talking a lot about the number of uh, elite violinists who listen to the podcast. And uh, another email came in from brothers Tom and David Greed. Hi again, team. Ask and you shall receive. Please find attached our string quartet performing a version of the Football Weekly theme tune. Unfortunately, Patrick Bamford was unavailable to perform. I cannot believe of all people, Johnny Lou didn't know what a string quartet was. Um, performed by Avenue Ensemble, Tom Greed, first violin, David Greed, second violin, on viola, Lorenzo Macedo Sampao, summer signing from FC Porto, and on the cello, Dan Bull. It is absolutely, this is absolutely, oh, I don't, have you listened to it yet, Barry? It's yeah, brilliant, it's fantastic. Thanks so <laughs> much for sending it in. <laughs> yeah, we really appreciate it. The Guardian Football Weekly is produced by Silas Gray. Our executive producer is Christian Bennett, but for the time being, thank you, Barney. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan Wilson. Cheers, thank you. Cheers, Barry. Cheers, Max. Uh, Champions League, so we'll be back Wednesday and Thursday this week. The Guardian.